Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I'm Dori Mincer, president and owner of Revolutionized Retirement and your host for today. So now, without further ado, let me introduce Louis Tannenbaum, who is my guest. And let me just mention that I met Louis, met him a couple of times, but more recently at the Positive Aging Conference. That was just this past year in Washington, D.C., and that's when I invited him to be part of this program. Lewis is a leading authority on aging in place. He's the founder of Homes Renewed, which is a coalition of business, government, not-for-profits, and consumer stakeholders. He uniquely straddles the building, aging, healthcare, and policy worlds, and he was named in 2016 the Influencer in Aging by Next Avenue, and he won a prestigious Hive Award, and Hive is Housing, Innovation, Vision, and Economics. His recent article, Aging in Place Needs Out-of-the-Box Thinking, appeared in Forbes and received more than 4,000 shares. And it's a really interesting article to read. I'm going to ask Donna if it isn't already up there when the recording sent out. Maybe you can have a link to that article so all of our listeners can read it. So, Lewis, let me just start with asking. You have a really interesting background that got you interested in this. And so I'd love to start with you just telling us how did you get interested in both housing issues and in aging. I started, I was a geography major in college. And when I finished college, I wanted to build my own solar house. So somewhat to my father's dismay, I went out and found a job on a construction site and became a carpenter. In 1988, I was working as a remodeling contractor in the Washington, D.C. metro area and was invited to help with a family whose son had been shot and was a paraplegic. Just a horrible accident. And I asked his mother what she needed a carpenter for. And she said, I didn't have to help him in the bathroom when before he was injured. I don't want to help him in the bathroom when he comes home from rehabilitation. And this was 1988, pre-internet. There was no information around. I chased information as well as I could remodeled their bathroom and he was independent in the bathroom, I saw what an incredibly important value this was for this family. And from that, I was totally turned on by what I was able to do with my tools for this family. And that was a thrill. He didn't need to be special when he came home. The family didn't have to surround themselves with dealing with him because he could be independent. A few years later, I read an article about the age wave, and in some respects at the time, just to carve out a niche for myself as a college-educated contractor in the D.C. metro area, I decided to concentrate on aging in place remodeling. I thought it would have some of the same elements that I had used with Ryan's home. And so I joined the aging network of meetings in Montgomery County, Maryland, where in a very sort of visionary way, Montgomery County was sponsoring the meeting of the Aging Network in the early 90s, hoping to create businesses and agencies that would fit important roles in working for people who are aging and take pressure off the county by filling out, by encouraging private responses. At that time, we met 
in a senior center where they still meet, a senior center that had been converted from an elementary school. And we met in one of the classrooms of that school. Now that meeting is still going on. I still go sometimes. And it overfills the auditorium every month with the network in the area. While working with that aging network, there was a lot of fear, reluctance to engage with me because they thought I was a contractor trying to rip off older people. Over a couple years' time, I developed their trust, but realized that some of them thought I did only big jobs, and some of them I thought I did only small jobs, and though everyone thought it was a good idea, nobody really called. And that led me, in the meantime, I started teaching with Home Builders Associations and so forth, and with some grants from the Administration on Aging around the country, teaching volunteers and others about design strategies for this market. And eventually, after a meeting at the National Endowment for the Arts, focused on universal design, was involved with the Home Builders Association and ARP in producing a course and a program called Certified Aging in Place Specialist. And I was one of the first teachers of that program. That was about 2000. Pretty soon, I kept asking the question, if this is such a good idea, why doesn't anyone call? And that led me to just start studying aging and the way aging services work and attitudes about aging and culminated in a paper that I wrote for the MetLife Mature Market Institute called Aging in Place 2.0, Rethinking Solutions to the Home Care Challenge. And that paper is still available online or through my website and it's still pretty current. Now, I've moved on to, after still with that question, the CAPS program from the partnership between AARP and the home builders is still running and still gathering people. And there are tons of great products and beautiful products in both technology and building products for this market. But it's really not a market. It's a demographic. There isn't yet consumer demand for this strategy to update our housing. And that's where I am today, trying to find other paths to create consumer interest to update our housing infrastructure so that more people can get what they want, which is to remain the kings and queens of their castle throughout the whole modern lifespan. That's a really interesting beginning and I'd love you to just keep expanding. You said actually that you this morning thought of uh, some things you wanted to share with the audience and I'd like to have you do that but I do want to encourage people that the MetLife the Place 2.0 is still really relevant even though written in 2010. So I'm hoping during the course of this call that you're going to expand on it and I do want you to talk some if you will but it may, it may or may not fit with what you just had wanted to prepare to start with, but what you're thinking is on why people are so reluctant to take this on and begin to think about these housing issues before there's a crisis. Okay. So two things. One, the fact that report, the MetLife report, Aging in Place 2.0, came out in 2010 and is still current is both kind of the good news and the bad news, right? I would love to think that it was superseded. But the fact is, it hasn't, and that makes it even more significant in some respects. What this really comes down to is that medical research has changed longevity incredibly 
to our wonder, it's almost a crowning achievement of our society, right? We have in 1776, life expectancy was 32. In 2000, in 1900, life expectancy was 47. In 1935, a significant date because that's when Social Security started, life expectancy was 61. We weren't really planning to pay very many people for very long when Social Security was adopted. In 1945, when the post-war housing boom started, life expectancy was still not what near what it is today because in 1965, when Medicare was adopted, and coincidentally, when the Mustang first came out and the Beatles were just hitting their stride, they're beginning one year after their first tour in America, and ice makers were coming to refrigerators, we adopted Medicare. Life expectancy was 71. Now, people are really different at 71 than they are at current life expectancy, which is 79, with the caveat that if you reach 65, you'll probably reach 84. So if you think of people between 79 and 84, they are a, an incredible miracle from that 1932 or even 1776 or even 1900 with life expectancy at 47. But for my purposes, the problem is that medical advance has not kept pace in our home design. Our homes are built based on the 1945-ish model that doesn't really accommodate age. You think about even the Lincoln Memorial. It has so many steps, whereas the FDR Memorial, built more recently, has no steps because we know now that there's a lot of people in our population who have a difficulty moving around. And when it comes to housing, our housing, if you think about some homes that you were in as a child or even today, our houses in this country, many of them were built before plumbing and electricity, and we adapted the houses. We brought them up to date with modern technology, plumbing, electricity, central heating, and then more recently, as fuel became expensive, we added weatherization and insulation programs and policies and technologies, and even more with smoke alarms and CO2 alarms, those types of things. These are all updates to our housing. And more recently, we had this great, huge boom in solar collectors and even some wind energy, but primarily solar collectors took off like a rocket when as a society we decided that we needed to become more cognizant of our fuel use and our carbon footprint and we put in place some incentives for solar collectors and boom that industry just took off like a rocket so homes renewed is just the latest in this sequence in this dynamic momentum to adjust our housing infrastructure to to make sure our housing is the current status that we need for the miracle of medical research and longevity. But beyond that, the kind of really fun thing is that it's an enormous opportunity to expand training for people to do installations and manufacture great products and boost business. If we could just get a little what in Yiddish is a zet, little, just a little push to get people to act on this because we're really interested in the aging in place and we're really interested in new fangled things for our homes, both technologies and design items. 
And this is just a great opportunity that I'm trying to help develop. It sounds so so incredibly important, and you're absolutely right that it it becomes the societal policy issue of embracing. It's tied in, it seems to me, with the whole concept of housing, but also age-friendly communities and cities to think about what people need at all ages. And the fun thing about that is I don't usually say walk and roll, age-friendly so much as I say walk and roll community. The fun thing is that when you have a community that is what we call age-friendly, it also meets the need for kids to get out on their own and grow their independence and for couples and families and friends to walk to things and be able to enjoy things. And that cuts back on carbon use and all kinds of things. But it's good for everybody when we really keep current in our infrastructure. It really ties in with some of the stuff we're dealing with today. But I'm also, what I keep coming back to is, and even thinking about when you first got into this whole notion about valuing independence, trying to help us at whatever age or whatever our life story is to be independent, but trying to set it up so there can be the interconnection and interdependence between people in terms of how we live and housing needs. I really hear that. We trumpet individualism and independence in this country, but it's a misnomer. It's a misdirection of our thinking because, and I tell two sort of stories about that. So probably a lot of the people on this call, like me, had coffee this morning. Now, I've never grown coffee coffee in the morning. I've never grown coffee beans. I occasionally, I don't roast them. I don't. Sometimes I grind them, sometimes I buy a pre-ground, but almost more significantly, I pour a little milk in my coffee, and you know something? I've never milked a cow. So though I consider my making and drinking coffee in my home an act of independence and individualism, it's the way I want it in my own home, I rely on an incredible array of supports and agencies and businesses and people that I don't even know who support me to have that cup of coffee. And in a similar way, I've built homes. I am a carpenter, but I've never cut down a tree in my life. And I rely on an incredible supporting industry to drop off a stack of lumber, to drop off plumbing supplies, etc. if I need to build a house. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not quite capable in my capabilities to build homes, but I still need to rely on support behind me. So though I love to think of this sort of ideal of independence, the fact is it's interdependence. No matter who you are, no matter what age, human beings are about interdependence. And that, as the reality changes, for example, when we got in the early days of electricity, there were people had little generators in their yard, and some people have them again. But we also decided to go with the grid and go with, let's not everybody create their own electricity, we'll make it downtown and send it out on wires. In the same way, aging, successful aging, if we want to have that term, is really a function of social interdependence. It's a social system and programs 
and connections that make any individual at any age part able to function in our society. So independence almost gets us in trouble sometimes trying to claim independence. Yeah, I like the idea of the interdependence. But so how what kind of things have you learned over all of these years in terms of what kinds of things let's just talk about people and their own homes now and then maybe we can move to the policy mm-hmm. part which is so important is what are some of mm-hmm. the things that that you've seen that people tend not to think about and part of what I've liked in your sort of the notion of the out of the box is to plan ahead think ahead when you're well and able and when you're doing potential remodeling of things that m- can be of assist down the road. Can you speak to that? Because I think there are a lot of people yeah. who would be really interested in that. Yeah, the things I think about are, like I'm redoing the front of my home now. I've moved a couple of years ago, and I've got a plan. I want to be able to get in my house without steps. I want to get in my house without, by, just as I roll my car, my suitcase from the airport baggage claim to my car, I want to be able to roll my suitcase from my car to, or the cab or lift right into my home without having to schlep it up the steps. And I have done and seen so many beautiful landscape projects that eliminate steps at the door. One of the great things is to put a cover over the door and a light on the lock so that if you're getting there at night or in the rain, you don't have to worry about trying to fumble it in the dark and you don't have to worry about being caught in the rain. So if you have a no-step entry with a cover at the door, that's fantastic. If you have a way of maneuvering through your house on that day that you come in from a run or a bike ride and you feel sore and tired, you can maneuver through your house and get into the shower without any steps or bumps, that's fantastic. If you've got grips, I I used to do slides about home modifications and stuff. I have a picture of a three-year-old in the shower and he's holding onto a grab bar. Why? Because it's there. So every one of us who has any sense We'll be using grips as we go along in life, but so many people are resistant to even something so simple as a grip in a slippery place because it's stigmatized in our own minds by our sense that it implies an inability or a decline, where in fact it really just implies good sense. It's like in the our own ageism. <laughs> No, I'm just saying it's our own, our own ageism. Yeah. It is our own ageism. As individuals, our individual ageism makes up the big common wheel ageism. And in the kitchen, I have a place where I can sit and cut. So I'm, I've got my men's group coming over tonight. I'm making a curry. I'm going to be able to sit and chop garlic and onions and all that. I don't have to stand up the whole time because I've made a sitting place where I can chop and cook in the kitchen. That's an adaptation that doesn't have anything to do with age. It does have something to do with sense and stamina. Why should Thanksgiving mean sore feet? Why can't it also mean, why can't you sit while you're, you're getting ready for a big family meal? And lighting the same way. When I did over, started doing over housing in, in the 80s and 90s here in DC, dimmer switches 
we're all the rage and dimmer switches give us the opportunity to have more or less light with the same fixturing. That makes so much sense instead of either having dim or too bright. It's a range that we need for the range of activities we conduct in our house. And this also makes it good for the fact that our eyes adjust differently as we become the medical miracle that the National Institutes of Health has brought us with all the research funding that we've done in medical science. This is really just it's adapting our housing to be current with the miracles of medical science. So it ties into people thinking ahead, planning ahead, finances. It's very much interconnected with, with this notion that are you, I guess so many people buy home, people talk about the starter home or the this home or that home. But what I'm hearing you talk about is that if you're in a home and really like it and you have this opportunity to think about how are you going to then design it so that you can live in it through the rest of your life. That it becomes so important to be intentional and go ahead in relation to this. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to make it larger than that. I'd like to make it okay. that you can be, it doesn't matter how old you are, if, we, if anyone's remodeling a home today, um, if anyone's using two-by-fours and tile and cement and stuff, they should be doing it in a way that matches that medical miracle. So it, it's not really about individual planning for me so much as it is our societal planning. We rebuild airports to allow jumbo jets and to recognize that there's going to be more air travel as airplane. That's a societal thing. We just say, let's do it. We put out a bond issue and then the whole society basically gets behind it. And that those airports allow private businesses to grow in order to serve the people who are paying the interest on the bonds through their taxes. And in the same way, our housing the two-by-fours that went into our housing is our use of our natural legacy coming to these shores in the United States, and we need to update it, and it's a, a, a national issue. It's a common opportunity to be modern. We tore up the streets. I remember a few years ago when they, we tore up all the streets to put down fiber cable or higher-speed Internet. This is the same thing. New technologies, oh, let's jump out there and update the infrastructure. Do you find people gravitating, carpenters and architects, and do you find them gravitating toward this way of thinking that people are developing skills? It just seems to make so much yeah. sense, as you're saying, of yeah, there, there's you know, a lot new jobs. There are, yeah. Right. There's a lot of courses in the design schools in what's called universal design. American Society of Interior Designers has that. Occupational therapists have that. Carpenters, contractors, and architects all have courses about this. And when I was involved with the Home Building Association, I worked on a program called Active Housing Specialist Cash, it was called. And we had the same things. It was seeing the techniques. They're not rocket science. They're just alternate techniques that you use the same materials to to do this. So there is capacity for this reality 
in the building and design world, the problem is we don't have any demand. We just don't have people thinking this way yet. And that led me, I'm a big fan of the behavioral economics popular writing. I have this whole stack of books from Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, to Nudge and some of the others. One that really sticks in my mind is a book by Chip and Dan Heath called Switch. And in that book, they suggested that when you want to make social change, you look for analogous circumstances to yours and see what works. They call them bright spots. And the bright spots I look at are too recent. In many communities in this country, we, adapt, we decided that we didn't want to be using all those plastic bags at the grocery store anymore. So we threw what's functionally an incidental tax, five cents in my area, on reusable bags. And miraculously, everybody starts showing up at the store, or almost everybody, start showing at the store with reusable bags. And on that day that you forget to take your reusable bags into the store because your mind is, you're standing in line and you're almost embarrassed now to be purchasing those five bags. So there's real social change on a substantial and significant issue. But we were all able to use reusable bags before, but it's the five cents that changed behavior. So that's one of the bright spots I'm looking at. And the second bright spot I've looked at is the solar industry. I told you I started out wanting to do solar in the 70s, and I did build some solar homes and installed wood stoves in the old days and all kinds of things, lots of insulation, and built my own passive solar house. But when it came around to the incentives that emerged at a time that's coincidental to President Obama's stimulus package. It was coincidental that solar collectors, solar incentives came on at the same time. That industry took off like a rocket. So there was substantial subsidy from the Obama surge for the commercial side, but the residential side was really a function of incentives that were built into both federal and state tax policy. And that industry just took off like a rocket, and it has a substantial and interesting benefit across the board. That's the way policy has usually worked. When you leverage private investment through some sort of policy incentive. So that's what I'm looking at right now with Homes Renewed. I'm working with my legislative person on a federal bill. There, there was a bill last year in the last Congress, H.R. 5254, which the Senior Accessible Home Act or something like that, that died in the last Congress, but it had 20 co-sponsors. So we're writing a follow-up bill, Homes Renewed is, that will encourage our federal legislators to recognize that this is an important societal need and move forward with a program that I think will be even more acceptable to the current thinking about government spending and government entitlement to leverage private spending to move, create some demand on this issue. Just lower the cost of this kind of remodeling over some other type of remodeling. So you want to redo your bathroom, and instead of doing it the way you used to do it, you just do it this new way because you get a little incentive, a little push from policy. And that will encourage the building industry and create more jobs and so forth. 
And then the flip side of that is that I think this country, one of the enormous resources that we have in this country is the voting, donating, and volunteering older adults in this country, older citizens in this country. And we're going to be starting local campaigns alongside the village movement and the age-friendly movement to bring a tangible focal point to older voters to encourage their legislators, both locally, state, but also federal legislators, to move on this issue. Because, heck, this is going to be great. It's, it sounds really important. I want to start bringing in some questions of people, but I, I had a question of my own, too. One of the okay. things, so my husband and I live in a townhouse, and we have 19 stairs to get in, and for us, it's great exercise. However, in this thinking ahead, I decided this past year, and I know you have mixed feelings about these chairlifts, but, or at least I've read that in something I read, but however, it's made a difference. We ended up putting in a chairlift, not for us now, but we might need it someday, but we just began to discover some friends of ours couldn't visit anymore. And so we mm. call it visitability so that people can visit us and we we'll put that in. And we also realized that that in, in just little changes to make, we already have a shower with a seat and stuff, but some of the things you've mentioned in terms of there's a tiny little step to get into it, which we have to think about. But the toilets always are so low. And so now we've discovered you can buy higher toilets so that you don't have to bend down so much. And so these are right. piecemeal changes. But I wonder if you could comment a little on safe people aren't able to make the major changes. What are some of the piecemeal changes that, that you would recommend? The most the simplest, most important ones probably are the grips. Grips in all kinds of places around your house. Grip. Some people call them grab bars, but some of them are so beautiful that I don't like to use that term because it evokes images of stainless steel, whereas there are colors, there are curves, there are waves. There's just a whole slew of designer, what I guess would be called designer grab bars out there in the market. And I, I don't want to be in a wet, slippery place. The automatic tendency is to stick your hand out and hold on to something. So why not have something to hold on to? A lever door handles are one of the simple things because you don't need to have that eye have carpal tunnel a little bit. There are some days when I can't grip things, but if you have a lever handle, it's easier to just push it down. And it also helps if you've got bags in your arms, you can push that lever down with your elbow. The light type of light switches that you could just hit with your fist because they're flatter. It used to be called decora or something like that. But so light switches like that are an improvement. And also just lighting in general. I stayed, there's a resort out in Las Vegas called Wynn, which was the cutting edge resort when I first stayed in it back a few years ago. It was one of the first weeks it was open for a conference. And it had the most beautiful soft lighting that shined on the floor underneath the vanity in the bathroom. And that was so beautiful. And what it did was allowed me to get up if I needed to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I was able to get up with just this soft light that didn't jar my eyes as a bright light might and provided a pathway to the bathroom. Much like you have in a movie theater, you have those little lights along the thing or on airplanes. And these are some techniques that really make it much easier to, to continue to live safely and, and beautifully in your home. 
So there's grips, pick up throw rugs, look at the stairs and see if the railing is good and solid and on both sides and continuous. A lot of these things are, we're just starting to recognize some of subtle changes in our environment that have an impact on how well we get to live there. Great points. Let me start integrating some of these others and then we'll move back also to the what policy issues and what people can do too. But So Bill from Cambridge says, as a group, empty nester baby boomers and older seniors are overhoused. In fact, one in three bedrooms is empty and the average space per person has tripled from roughly 300 square feet per person to 900 square feet. Does, quote, thinking outside the box mean transforming single-family homes into boomer roommate or co-living arrangements? If so, what models do you see emerging? What incentives should we create as a society? That's a great point. Yeah, there's all these models called First of all, there's accessory dwelling units, which allow people to use some of that real estate in many multiple ways. There are rules and regulations that need to be re-examined in terms of what constitutes a family unit. But then there are also house sharing, co-housing, and what I like to call boomer compound housing, where people, when I, people hear what I'm about, they often come up and they go, oh, you know what I really want to do? I want to live close to my three best friends, but like a group house in college, but not exactly. I want more privacy. I want it to be nicer and cleaner. I want it to be a little different, but I want that kind of nurturing proximity with my friends. So there are many models of this going on and being tried all the time. There's Silver Nest, which is a company that started, I think, in the Denver area, which is doing house sharing matching. There are a number of models like that. There's a woman, Anna Marie Pluhar, I'm trying to re- remember her, Share- sharinghousing.com, I think, is her company or something. I worked, I wrote the forward to a book called My House, Our House, with three women from business. These were working women who were living independent, independently, just interdependently, but in their own homes. And they were having dinner one night, and they were constantly taking each other's cats in and out and stuff because they all traveled for their work. And one day they said, let's move into a big house by themselves. And they said, okay, let's think about that. Then one of them went out and found, happened to notice a house for sale that was this big house, the house she'd always dreamed of. And by pooling their resources, they were able to take over that house, make it fit their needs, and they lived there until some life state changed stage for 12 years together. They had a great time, and they had great rules that, you know, that people who are mature adults can have nicer, more thoughtful rules than we did when we were college kids stepping on each other's lives in the shared housing at that time. But there are all kinds of models that are obviously. One of the statistics speaking to the question is that in Reston, Virginia, which it, you know was one of these sort of visionary cities of the 60s, visionary communities in the 60s outside Washington, D.C., and there were some lakefronts. And just as your questioner asked, what happened was over time, all around that lakefront, there were fairly large houses. These were prime lots, and five people lived in the houses. But then when those homes became empty nesters, the population around that lake, the population of people able to use and enjoy that amenity dropped to 20% because the adults were living there, but the kids didn't flow in the coop. Why not reconfigure those homes or those families 
to continue to allow fuller use of that amenity and that real estate. That's a really important point. Mm-hmm. I think it ties into another comment. I think you've spoken to it, but I want to read you Rain's from California, his comment and question, and maybe you'll have a few other things you want to add, which is he commented first that it was great to see you in Chicago at ASA. And he says, as it a fellow geologist, it always is. Yeah. I just recently saw him at another conference since I wasn't at ASA, but as a fellow geography major, I appreciate the enormity of the challenge you're embracing of helping people see the state of the built environment as the product of history and our society's choices, not just the way things are. You speak of the illusion of independence in a world where the spectrum of aging-related housing providers is framed in terms of independent living to assisted to nursing care. Perhaps you can share, and I think you've been doing it, but you may have a few other things, but perhaps you can share a few words of wisdom about the supports we can weave into our worlds through either having housemates, co-owners like our authorial friends from Pittsburgh or the neighborhood level sharing embodied in co-housing communities. And then the second question is, you said you're developing homes renewed model legislation that can help incentivize updating our homes for the needs of modern lifespans. Can you share the core elements of that and how can we support it? Yeah, you can go. Thanks, Reigns. It was great seeing you in Chicago. As in every conference, Reigns range is almost ubiquitous. But the, yeah, I think I did speak to some of the house sharing models that are out there. But in terms of homes renewed, what we're looking at is, for example, there is, there's some things that need to be updated from legislative approaches in the past. One of them is that our building code legislations are arcane, whether it be local building code, the uniform housing code, or whether it be fair housing or ADA based on the American National Standards Institute 117.1 ANSI standard, what's referred to as the ANSI standard, that these things are arcane and difficult for people to follow. So one of the elements is that Homes Renewed is going to try to bring some more modern, updated attempts to communicate about what we need to do and what should qualify as an incentivized idea and incentivized installation and purchase. So that's one thing. The other thing is you can go to the Homes Renewed site. It's being revamped now, as websites always are, but you can sign up for our mailing list and be kept in touch. Some of the elements of what the proposed the legislation we're working on, and it's really a draft form right now with our legislative person, but are that it needs to be done in a way that doesn't really cost government any money. And that's going to be a trick, but we are looking at ways to shift aging policy to continue to include people without much resources, but to try to also include, make it more inclusive, just like visitability that you mentioned in your home. It's about inclusion, and we want to include more people from the middle and upper middle class in modern aging policy. So that those are two of the important tenets, inclusion and modernize the way that we communicate what qualifies. Those are the innovations we're looking at with homes and new legislation. Great. You also, somewhere I read that you also had a suggestion that, that I guess would need to go through policy or whatever, but even 
some way that people could use their 401ks without a penalty to do some of this redesigning? I, I, think, I mean, what I try to do, and I've discussed this with a lot of financial planner types. So financial planners often focus how much money you have and how your house is one of your assets. But if you look in a different way at that total totality of assets, how can you kind of redistribute the buckets in order to make a better plan for yourself going forward? And one way, I think, is to make your home over in this way into a better tool for unlearned living than it is currently. So as we take some of your retirement liquid cash from 401k, it's pre-tax money, so it's 30% cheaper in many cases than other savings you may have, and apply that to this home update so your home becomes a better tool. Now, it, you've got the same amount of asset, but your house is a better tool, and you've got a little less liquid, but as you move forward, you're better prepared for that liquid to last you longer because you may not be pushed out of your home or you won't fall down. Or one of the key savings is that one of the really huge medical expenses is the sort of rehabilitation that occurs after an acute injury or a surgery or something like that. You often are spending maybe 30 days in rehab because you can't get out of your home, can't get into your home and into the shower. But if you could get into your home and into the shower, then you would maybe spend only five days in rehab saving bucket loads of Medicare money and your own money, and you get better, faster, and happier in your own home. So the money that you don't pay in taxes from using your 401, your pre-tax savings, is the same, is, becomes the savings for Medicare because A, you may not have fallen down, B, you have returned from rehab more quickly, and C, and maybe most importantly in today's sort of climate, is we're starting to recognize that the ratio of caregivers to caregivees is changing in a way that makes us wonder who's going to be doing the caregiving. But one of the problems with caregiving is the lack of safety. But if the home is made over in a way that the caregiver can be safer, then we're saving and making better use of that important resource. So this is really a function of resource reallocation, redistribution, taking what you have and making sure it does its best job for you rather than a different type of spending or entitlement. We, we can't expect any new government entitlements or spending. Certainly a lot to think about, and it's so important to think about. We'll come back to that. Let me just – so well, one question that's just a bit more specific is just Teresa asked actually a few times, why – what is the history? Why are toilets made so low? Can you respond to that? That is exactly a back and forth. I don't like a high toilet. And I'll tell you why. And is it actually stuff? If you go to Lewis at LewisTenenbaum.com and look up toilet or something like that, there's a blog in there that's pretty deep about this. There is a factor of knees and hips and that as the population has gotten taller, many people don't want to get down so low. On the other hand, when you go to other parts of the world, Asia and so forth, you actually squat when you're eliminating. And that elimination in a squat is recognized to engage your muscles for elimination better. This may not really be a radio conversation, but your muscles for elimination are engaged better 
when your knees are above your hips. So unless you're quite tall, you actually probably really want that lower positioning relative to your feet when you're eliminating. I myself have moved into a house that had the higher toilet. It's not my preference, but I keep yoga blocks on either side of the toilet that I put my feet on after I sit down. I try to have the best of all worlds. I try to have a, I have a higher seat, but I also have the opportunity to elevate my knees above my hips. That's very interesting. <laughs> I would not have thought about that. Probably not that you can talk about, Dory, but the question no, came up, so there that, you go. Oh, absolutely. I like to integrate all the questions. Repeat again. So, two websites you've mentioned. One is lewistannenbob.com and the other is yeah. homesrenewed. Is it .com or .org? No, that's .org. Homesrenewed.org is this, this organization I'm seeing to engage consumer grassroots advocates and power, the power of grassroots consumers to our legislative process in order to kick up demand for this type of infrastructure update. That's one side. And then the blog I've had just for my writings and my website over the years is Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at Lewis Tenenbaum, L-O-U-I-S-T-E-N-B-A-U-M.com. And the website then to get your blogs is through the Homes Renewed. It's at lewistenenbaum.com. My blogs are at lewistenenbaum.com, but there's a link at Homes Renewed. And okay. then back over to the blog site, and there's a link on the blog site back to Homes Renewed. So okay. I'm not quite sure how to manage all of that. I think yeah. that's my challenge, managing modern social media and stuff. The technologically challenge of life, I have that myself, I must say. So a couple yeah. more questions here. Bill, who was asking the question earlier about empty nesters and so much room, he mentioned a couple of statistics, and he wondered if you might want to comment on this or elaborate on it. He said, says that these are some statistics of unlocking the inventory of unused bedrooms while people age in place. And he suggested mm -hmm. two stats. One is Seattle alone has 200,000 empty bedrooms. And number two, he says, is 4 million baby boomer women are already living in roommate groups of three or more. Are you hmm. aware of those? Yeah. I'm not familiar with those statistics at all, but I don't have any reason. I don't know where you get them, but I have no doubt that those are the case. I live in a sort of two or three bedroom home with one that's just probably two that are pretty much at least one that's empty, but I use it as an office, but it could be a bedroom. And then I have a guest room as well. So I'm one of them. And I have toyed with the idea of having a roommate just don't happen to have one right now. But I think this is exactly the way we need to use our resources better. And it's not just using our physical plant infrastructure room resources. It's using our social resources because that interaction of those roommates, whether it's just to save one trip to the grocery store because two people are sharing or make sure that one person has somebody to help them the day they're not feeling well or all those kinds of things. This is what makes life rich, being connected to other people. This is small-scale community at its best. Oh, absolutely. Connection, engagement, and purpose and meaning. That's part of well-being. Mm -hmm. Diane from Asheville, North Carolina says, this all makes such good sense. I'm 64 and thinking about cre creative independent housing options. 
And she says, keep up the good work while society and policy is catching up. So true what you point out about ageism and stigma. Thanks. I really appreciate that. It's really important for me. I'm recently really feeling both the pleasure of and the pressure of people agreeing with me. I feel like it's our time to make change and I need help doing it because it's a big nut to crack here. I'm really <laughs> glad to get support and validation on that stuff. Really and that ties into the people who agree with me. <laughs> oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, so Bill again from Cambridge says, if you were advising the president on his trillion-dollar infrastructure spending proposal, how can those expenditures incentivize the private sector to build healthier communities and expand senior housing options in naturally occurring retirement communities? This is it exactly. If we will go for an incentive like I'm recommending, and there are a number of funding mechanisms, but... And the fact is what in the news all the time is how we really do not expect or cannot expect to be having new government, new monies, entitlements or subsidies and we entitlements particularly. We need to, as we do that, what actually happens is this, particularly in terms of NORC, which is naturally occurring retirement community. So suburban NORC are communities with lots of disconnected homes where people are enjoying their individual homes. And But if we increase, if through these incentives, if we increase the concentration of homes that have these type of capabilities so that people are living in them, the impact on the service component that's so important, and it's a dynamic component. It's you know, dynamic. Some weeks you may need some help, some weeks you don't. Rather than move people out of their house the week they need help, never to see the inside again. Instead, we move services into the house. But that can be pretty inefficient in a suburban style neighborhood. Until you get a higher concentration of homes in that neighborhood, then the people pardon me, providing the service have a better place to scale their business. And they get, maybe not completely continuously, but they get a longer-term retention of those clients, which is an important thing for any business or service industry to succeed. So all the types of things, transportation, meals delivery, food delivery, door-to-door massages, other types of in-home care and help, and transportation out to social activities, are all more concentrated, they become more efficient, we develop new iterative, innovative models of delivery, and the whole potential grows enormously from that increased activity. That's how businesses start to make sense. So what are other things that that any of us can do? How can we try to help on a policy level to get people um, the, thinking more in line with what you're saying and actually helping money become available? I think there are some models. Yeah. For example, yeah, um, Design for Life in Montgomery County is one model of state and local property taxes that support people to make this type of remodeling. But I think there are two places that you can go in your community in particular, three. One is a village movement and maybe an age-friendly movement, if that sort of thing is going on in your community, join it and help it to focus on tangible, narrow policy goals. 
not so much the big picture with everything included. That sometimes seems to make people divide people and divide their energy. But we need so we need tangible goals. And Home Genius is designed to be tangible, concrete goals that will build momentum of this strength. Two is to go to your aging and housing agencies and committees that are part of your local state, local and state and county or whatever government, and join those efforts and say, look, we need not only to think about affordable housing in terms of buildings and low-income people, we need to think about appropriate housing in terms of individual homes and middle and upper middle income people. The Harvard Joint Center for Housing Study in a report in I think 2014 said the bulk of long-term care will occur in single family owner occupied homes, but the homes are unprepared. So if we wanna re reduce the burden on middle and upper on, on of caregiving on society, which some people are claiming is a problem. It's not necessarily a problem. It's not a problem if we deal with it. So let's go out there as a force and say, we care about this issue and get people to start caring about it. So those are two places because housing seems to be caught in a spiral of large buildings and affordability without paying attention to upgrading middle and upper middle income individual homes, of which there are so many. And two is the aging committee, because the aging committee or council or whatever in your community is probably focused on many really important things, stopping isolation, multi-generation, now dental is becoming really important, meals on wheels, transportation for aging, but also start to try to get that committee to recognize this interconnectedness and interdependence of the social services, the social determinants of health with housing that is appropriate and important in the middle class. I think you're so right. This has gotten lost. People just talk in more global ways of, and I know there's so many studies we want to age in place. We want to, but what you're talking about is the nitty gritty of what we need to do in a more, I hate the word proactive, but in a more proactive way of making this possible because we know we're an aging society and we're not addressing the problem. I think you're really bringing it to the forefront in such a, an important way. Yeah, one of the things that I, when I got into this, and probably you did too, we were talking about the pig and the python, right? You know what? They're not even talking about that anymore because it turns out my kids and your kids, the millennials, are as large a population as we are. Who could, who, how much did it take to figure that if each boomer has, if lots of boomers, each has two and sometimes three kids or maybe only even one, that population is going to be as large as the boomers, right? And they are going to get as old as we are, or probably, if the trends continue, even older. We need to create this housing for not an aging society that's going to be a blip, but an aging society that's going to go far into the future. That is the nature of the future. And one of the things I say, we started out by just relishing in the miracle of modern medicine that has created this miracle of longevity. But if we're not going to be supportive of updating our institutions and our infrastructure to make that valuable and worthwhile, 
then I'm, I think we should either do some of this stuff or call for an end to research that leads to increasing longevity. Because what are we doing? Be careful what you wish for, because I'm afraid that there's going to be too many cuts in that. So I'm just. I'm not wishing. I'm just saying that you know it's an inconsistency. Thanks for bringing me way back to the reality of our current state. Yeah. No, but I think you're absolutely right. What you're saying is just so worried that we're moving in the direction that isn't recognizing. You're right. Studies are, are there's statistics now that say for kids born today, there's a 50-50 chance they're going to live into their hundreds. So we really are talking about the miracle of medicine. Since you said you could stay a little bit longer, let me just ask two more questions that came up and then have you do a, okay. a final pulling it together. So Lydia from Virginia says, is Homes Renewed a membership organization? How can people and companies get involved in this effort? It is a membership organization. Of course, we're just a startup. So, you know, we have to take baby steps or we'll get overwhelmed. Our initial members are going to be initially on the business side, the manufacturers and distributors of both technology products and building products and medical equipment products that will gain sales from our efforts. So there are initial push. A second push is going to be the kind of mission-driven nonprofits that are out here and are working, but really aren't crossing the silos of policy and medicine, policy and technology and building infrastructure. They're working in like one of those things, and we're trying to bring a lot of them together. And then we are going to be starting the consumer part which is going to be huge. And consumer members will be at a different price point than these manufacturer members. But I'm hoping that we can see through this membership organization that consumers and really wonderful businesses with great and innovative products and the nonprofit sector, which has so much passion, have the same interests and goals and that this organization will bring them together to create some momentum and move forward. So it is very much a membership organization. We haven't yet set up how to apply for membership, but you can go to the homesrenewed.org site and sign up to be on the mailing list and you'll be kept in touch. And anyone who does that will be first in line to pay for their membership when it becomes available. And another question from Elaine in New York. She says, have you been made aware of and, dis and discussed the implications to social service qualifications for food stamps, rental and home costs, and heating system, system assistance? Seems like all new formulas would have to be developed with shared housing. I'm glad that has been brought to my attention. I am not there yet. And what did you say this person's name was? Elaine. I can send you her email. Want me to connect you with each other? Yeah, Elaine, well, or she New York. Yeah. Or Elaine, yeah, yeah. And, and, her. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Elaine is welcome, as is anyone on this call, to be the, the chairperson of the subcommittee of Homes Renewed that takes on that issue. We are at that point where we are building a team on this. 
of qualified people. We have a legislative person. We have a regulatory person. We have two local campaign people. We have association management person. And now maybe we have a liaison to the occupational therapy world. And maybe after today's call, Dory, we will have our person who tracks and looks into the adjustments necessary for shared housing. I remember when I was in college, right after college, I was living in a group house. And there was someone in that house who was on food stamps. I think it's not called SNAP now, but it was on food stamps then. And they had to have a separate cupboard, and there were rules and regulations about how the stuff was marked in the refrigerator. Now, I don't know if that's the sort of thing we're talking about. And I'm glad that this has really come up on this call. But maybe this is one of the types of adjustments or policy strategy things that we really need to do. Great point. So. This has just been wonderful. I want to thank you so much. But what would you like to share? What final takeaway would you like to leave the listeners from this call? The final thing for me is that we are a society. And we, this is for all of us. This is not an individual problem. It's not created by individuals. And it's not going to be solved by individuals. It's going to be solved as we are best as Americans by uplifting and caring for each other and moving forward with strategies that embrace and engage that American strength of voters, participants, volunteers, donators. And, and uh, this is not like some untackable problem. This is a very tackleable problem. And let's start tackling it today as a group. Thank you. This has just been very illuminating and so helpful and wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time and being with us and being part of the call. And I want to thank everybody who's been on the call. I think there have been some terrific questions, too. And hopefully, maybe you'll come back another time. Dory, this has been a real pleasure for me. I'm one of those people who is best articulating myself orally. So I can't wait to get my copy and write down what I said. (laughs) So I really appreciate the opportunity. Your questions have been excellent and really make me think, and I need to think hard. Thank you. And one other just final comment that just came in was just a suggestion from somebody that didn't say who they were saying, approach senior center memberships that you might find throughout the country, senior centers, people really interested in this and wanting to hear about it, learn about it, think about it for themselves, as well as become advocates. We will do that. We'll be a considered part of our local campaign strategy. And and Homes Renewed will be providing technical assistance and assistance to local communities on this topic in the very near future. Great. Thank you again so much for being here and everybody for being part of it. Take care. Sounds great. Thanks a whole lot to everyone. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com. 